Hello, Phil. Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, hold it. It says my voice is turned off. Hold on. Yes, can you hear me? No, it says my video is turned off. Just a second. Muted. Don't yeah, want we that. don't need video for the radio. No problem. Oh, oh I <laughs> Okay, fine. All right, good. Well, there I am then. Yes, and there you are, sir. So, Phil, welcome to the Fireside Chat Radio. How you doing tonight, man? Uh, I'm still recovering from my uh, right eye um, cat cataractomacomy uh, operation. Yeah, how's that going? It's fine. I can I can hear you much better now. <laughs> right. Somebody was asking if that might be a problem. Yeah, no, it's it, it, you know I had it on Monday, and uh, uh, it's really quite amazing. I can see extremely well now out of my right eye, but <clears throat> I also can can tell that my left eye, uh, which still has cataracts. Uh, is more yellowish, so I look like through a yellow window in my left eye and a crystal clear, bright window in my right eye. So when I get back from the trip to Australia and New Zealand, I will definitely have the left eye uh, uh, done as well so that I can uh, enter into a nice, clear, sparkling world of uh, reality. What's taking, taking you to New Zealand? Me and my wife, Melinda. Oh, just a vacation or... Yes, it's just a vacation, but oh, okay. I do have a, a friend in New Zealand, Hal Josephson, who worked uh, with me and Bergman for uh, uh, many years and helped Peter, uh, when he was doing his one-man show, perform in both Australia and New Zealand and China. Really? Uh, he's a terrific guy, and uh, he's been living there for several years now uh, with his new wife, and he's working to help the uh, New Zealand government established technological businesses in the states and vice versa. Hmm. Cool. Just uh, out of curiosity, this is something I've always wondered. What got you from from Indiana to LA? What uh, what got that move going? Well, it wasn't Indiana. Oh, uh, okay. It was from Manhattan. Ah. I'm writing my autobiography, so buy the book. Oh, okay. Basically. Then I'll find out. Yeah, I was born of Irish Amish and. Hello. Uh, we lost you. Actually, got a uh, go. position as a lawyer in New York on Wall Street with McNutt, Lanco, Proctor, and Lee. <clears throat> Moved the family from Indiana to Manhattan to East 94th Street uh, between Park and Lexington, 139 East 94th Street, two blocks away from uh, where the Marx Brothers apartment building was wow. on 2nd Lexington. And I went to school. Alan Stevenson's school, where I learned to play the violin and sang in Gilbert and Sullivan uh, productions, and basically started to, to discover my theatrical career. Appeared on live television at the age of nine on Uncle really? Daniel's The Funnies, and <clears throat> my career continued. I went from there to Riverdale Country School, and from there to Yale, finally pursued a, a BA in drama, and uh, eventually got a soap opera. Uh, my life went on, blah, 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 Broadway, off-Broadway, blah, blah, blah. Did a show that took me out to L.A. called The Amorous Flea. I won a Theater World Award for. Uh, I went back to do a Broadway show, befriended Brandon DeWilda, uh, doing an, understudying him in another Broadway show, drove out to L.A., met Peter Fonda, went to the Sunset Strip curfew demonstration uh, riot, sat on an open copy of the L.A. Free Press, 
pulled it out from under my ass. I was sitting on Peter Bergman's face. <laughs> Peter Bergman had said, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews uh, uh, returning war veterans. I knew Peter Bergman because we went to Yale together. And I didn't wrote, know if you, if you knew him at Yale. That was my question there. Yeah, I knew him at Yale in my freshman year. He wrote the lyrics for uh, two musicals that I starred in, written by Austin Pendleton. Tom Jones and Booth is back in town. <clears throat> but I had only run into him a couple of times after Yale. And, uh, and I called him up the next day. And uh, he said he was the Wizard of Oz on this show called Radio Free Oz, which I'd heard about. And I said, okay, well, fine. Uh, he said, come on down and we'll play. So I appeared on the show that night. And uh, shortly thereafter, I met Dave Osman and Phil Austin, who were also working with the KPFK. We all started, we discovered we were all fire signs. We started improvising together. And that was the birth of the fire sign theater. Very cool, very cool. How long was it uh, you working together before you made the first album? Very shortly thereafter, um, we we started uh, improvising together, uh, doing like uh, we we did an appearance at UCLA in the student center <clears throat> because we had achieved some fame on the radio as the Firesign Theater, primarily because we did this big put on called the Oz Firesign Theater at a film festival. And of course, the whole thing was totally phony. But we were showing excerpts from our movies on the television, on the radio, and <laughs> and uh, and we talked about all this. It's a it's a long and interesting story. I'm not going to get into it all now. But that that kind of made you buy the book. That kind of made us uh, locally famous. And then uh, sometime around there, Peter Bergman did the first Love In at mm -hmm. uh, Asian Fields in in uh, Hollywood. That was '67, right? Yeah, somewhere around there, and 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 in that time, uh, Phil Austin had been doing voices for a, a for a record at Columbia, which was produced by a guy named Gary Usher, uh, and it was like an astrology record, and uh, Gary wanted to do a, a a Radio Free Oz record, and Peter said, no, no, we're going to do the Oz Firesign Theater record and uh, Gary said anything you want Peter but uh, Disney company wouldn't let us use the, the name Oz because they were coming out with a, some kind of a cartoon called Return to Oz or something and their lawyer sent us all these mean letters hmm. <clears throat> we, we could have said we're Australian we're Aussie so <laughs> fuck you we're gonna use it anyway but that's what happened so we became the Firesign Theater which is confusing enough anyway and we did our first record, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. And the way that that all happened was also very complicated and very magical and very bizarre. Because at that time, I had gone back to New York to close up my apartment in the village. I was living with a girl named Diana Dew who, in the East Village who had invented electric clothing that, that would glow. And, uh, and, uh, you, and there were dance dresses and ties and belts that would flash in rhythm with the music that was being played and just at the point where I knew the relationship had reached its end the phone rang and it was Peter Bergman and he said there's a ticket waiting for you at Black Rock which is what they called uh, CBS Records, no, CB, the CBS building downtown in New York uh, uh, we're, we're flying you back 
because we're going to do our first record. Uh, we only have the, the title. It's called Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. And I knew what that meant because we'd already done an improvisation based on all of that. And I said, fine. And I kissed my, uh, my girlfriend goodbye and flew to L.A. And we wrote the first record. And the rest is histrionics. Fantastic. I noticed from uh, your bio on the Internet that uh, you have visited the USSR. What, uh, what was that about and how did it influence uh, your albums? That was at Yale. That was my freshman year at Yale. I was, um, I, I was, I was born a linguist. I, I was born with the ability to hear and repeat music and words and things. <clears throat> and uh, uh, you can read more about that in the book. But basically, uh, I, I already spoke French, and, um, and I was singing professionally and non-professionally. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I wanted to learn Russian because at the time in the 50s, there were all these propaganda posters and things on the television all the time, and I wanted to read that alphabet and see what they were saying. So I taught myself Russian, and then I, I took it at, at my freshman year at Yale, and I joined the Yale Russian Chorus because I wanted to sing in Russian and learn Russian that way as well. And believe it or not, they decided to send us to the Soviet Union on a, on a um, uh, what would you call it, a cultural exchange program. And so I went with 40, about 40 other guys to uh, Russia. <clears throat> uh, we went by way of uh, Frankfurt am Main uh, through Berlin before the wall. Yeah. The train from Berlin to Warsaw to Poland. Spent several days there, then went Brest into Moscow, Moscow, Leningrad, uh, Kiev, Yalta, Sochi, uh, Lvov all over the Soviet Union, singing on street corners and public squares, a few a few official concerts, but pretty much just out singing for the people. We traveled with Dwight Mitchell and Willie Ruff, two wonderful musicians, jazz musicians. Willie was a mulatto, and Dwight was a, a nice, dark-colored black pianist who scared the shit out of the Soviets. They'd never seen black people before. They'd come up and touch them to see if their color came off. And recently, when I appeared with my wife at the Here Now Festival in Kansas City, Willie showed up, Willie Ruff showed up to come and see uh, one of the shows that we did. And I just had the most wonderful time uh, reuniting with him. He's a, a professor of music at Yale and lives down south now. And he'd heard about this and decided to come and surprise me. And boy, did we have fun catching up on all of that trip. But it was on that trip that I... Basically, after we'd finish a concert, we'd be surrounded by Soviet citizens asking us questions. And that's where I really got my conversational fluency in Russian. Because I'd be asking, they'd be asking the same questions over again, <clears throat> over and over again, and I'd be answering them over and over again. And uh, it became pretty second nature after a while to speak Russian with them. Huh. That's very cool that they were doing that, uh, you know, having that kind of cultural exchange. We should have had more of that, I think. Well, yeah, but you have to understand that uh, uh, it was a double-edged sword because the, they were still, uh, the secret police were still clamping down on people for talking to Westerners. And the only time that we could speak freely was uh, late at night. It was during the summer, and you had what, what are known as the White Nights. It stays light in that part of the world, including Scandinavia, until like four in the morning. It gets briefly dark, and then the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. and so we would walk around on these huge streets which were made huge so that made you know very wide so they couldn't blockade them 
and have another revolution and talk to people who really were interested in finding out what was really going on in the West. And uh, it was very, very enlightening. But nonetheless, we were, uh, there was a, a pretty spy who slept with us all and, and turned us into the KGB. And when we, when we were in Riga, Latvia, because the uh, leader of our chorus, Dennis Miskevitz, is Latvian, <clears throat> the, uh, the students there threw a party for us. They were all denounced in Pravda. They were all thrown out of the university. We were denounced as spies. You know, it was a, it was a nasty game. But we still uh, overwhelmed them with, uh, with our, our knowledge and our uh, guts, I guess. And so we, we managed to, to, to touch a lot of people. And, of course, what I learned from that was that the Soviet Union was a big fraud. And that they had repaired the front of these buildings. But if you went inside, it looked like it was right after the bombing of the, after the Second World War. Sure. You know, well, yeah, sure, you say. But when I came back and tried to tell this to people, nobody would believe me. Well, that's I, what people were saying, yeah. Yeah, it's going to fall in on its own weight. You know, they're completely paranoid, uh, they're, which is rightly so. They were terribly damaged during the war. But, you know, they're living in this crazy paranoia, putting up this, this tremendous front. And they believe that, you know, uh, uh, workers of the world unite is a whole concept that they'll never, never reach communism. But they will, they will build socialism. Communism was the carrot at the end of the stick. Well, wasn't the, it really that they felt that it wasn't going to work unless they really had world communism? Well, in Russian you say, mir, or you say, mir. mir means we want peace. That was the big propaganda phrase at the time. For but, <laughs> but, the, but, but the word mir also means the world. Ah. The world. So when they said, it meant we want the world. Because the only way that they could envision peace was if everybody was united under one system, the, right. the socialist system, the communist system. So you're right. That's, that, that's the joke, uh, the cosmic joke, if you will, or the communist joke. Well, you've done quite a bit of, uh, of Russian type skits in, over the years in the albums, uh, the yeah. communist love song and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting how that influenced. Well, now at least we know where it came from. I had no idea that you toured like that. That's very well, cool. The communist love song was based on a girl I fell in love with named Ala in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. <clears throat> and everything that I sing about in that song happened. Uh, really? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was... It was very romantic. The Russians have great soul, great spirit. Um, uh, you, they're still terrific people, and they're still struggling. But, you know, the fact that they had built this underground society uh, is why they have all these oligarchs now, all these enormously rich people, these, this mafia, because mm -hmm. they've already established a ghost culture, a black market, uh, a, second, a second economy that was holding you know, the common people together in many ways. Uh, under Yeah, yeah, right, like Target, right. And no, I said black market. Like, oh, black market, did you say? Oh, yeah. Target is the same oh, Okay, whatever. <laughs> black market. But it's also, it was like, a, I say, a ghost economy, a second economy run by local officials um, and created an economic mafia that has led to this enormous wealth uh, in the Soviet Union now and kind of an imbalance of power. Not unlike ours, mind yeah, you. I was, I was going to say, you know, things are getting kind of weird in this country, too. They've been weird for a long time. Well, uh, 
one of the fans in Florida asks, will he be doing any other stage work or other, uh, other kinds of work like that in other parts of the country? I doubt it. I think that uh, once we lost Peter, um, uh, the, our appearances on the stage really came to an end. It, it, it of course, is possible that, that uh, David and Phil and I could do something, but there isn't a great desire to do so. Um, and, you know, Phil Austin doesn't like to, to fly. He travels in a car uh, uh, or, or in a truck or in a, a tank with his uh, six dogs and his beautiful wife, Una. Uh, Dave Osman is getting too old to tour. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in doing it anymore either. Sure. So, you know, so it's just we had a great run. Uh, we toured right up to the end, really thanks to Peter's courage uh, and the fact that he didn't tell us that he was sick which we're resentful of, but nothing can do about it now. And, uh, uh, and we, we managed to, you know, to play to a lot of our fans uh, within, uh, you know, on this coast, where it was easy enough for us all to get together and do it. But uh, I'm afraid, you know, those days are over. They were great, but they're over now. Well, Peter certainly was a very brave and strong man. You really couldn't tell that he was having problems to, until just the last couple of episodes of Oz. It's very true. It's very true. He was... He kept it a qu quite a secret and uh, uh, and maintained his uh, vigor and spirit right up to the end. Bless him. Uh, the movie Amazon Women on the Moon has you in one of the skits, and I wondered how you got involved in the silly pate skit. Well, I would I was doing. Remember, I read the book. I, I, <laughs> okay. I've had I have I've had numerous careers, and and when I started to write this book with Brad Shriver, who's helping me. Put it together. I realized I always thought that I had, you know, I did I had my acting career, I had my television career, I had my commercial career, my radio career, I had my fireside career, I had my Procter and Bergman career, I had my theater career, I had my Broadway career, I had my singing career. But no, it was all at once. Everything was happening at once. I, I when I look at my date books uh, from the, the and that's not who I dated. It's what I was doing from day to day from like 1967 to 2009. I look at these books and I realize that I was doing Procter and Bergman, writing a movie. I was uh, preparing a stage show with with Firesign Theater. I was doing guest starring parts on television. I was uh, performing uh, uh, in the theater. I was doing it all at once. Incredible. And I don't know how I did it uh, or why I did it, but that's the nature of the beast. And so, uh, whatever the question was, you asked me. Here, a cat needs to be let in. Hold on a second. Okay. Hey, Pepper. Here you go. Come on. There you go. There you go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Pepper. 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 Come on. Come on. Here you go. Ah. There you go. Okay. Pepper can eat now. Um, anyway, uh, there, there were, you know, I'm still doing theater. Um, I'm still doing commercials. I'm still doing voiceovers. I'm still acting in movies. I have a movie called um, uh, Window of Opportunity, <clears throat> which should be coming out next year. Uh, it'll, it won't go direct to video. It'll have a theatrical run and then go to video. And uh, I was just offered a part in another film called The Love Addict, uh, which should be quite fun that, uh, that, that uh, somebody basically thought of me for. So, you know, I'm still doing all this stuff. And uh, Melinda and I work uh, when we can on the stage together. And we tour the country when we can in various radio-oriented pieces. 
I'm sorry I'm losing my voice, but this is all part of, of this regime I'm taking. I'm putting eye drops in, and you know, oh, okay. it's affecting my voice. I can't help it right now. Well, uh, well, it's. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, how uh, Give Us a Break got going, and maybe we can let you go. Well, Give Us a Break was, was it the second album, I think, that we did. We did TV or not TV. Uh, the whole Procter & Bergman thing happened when we reached an impasse with David and Phil. They didn't want to tour uh, at a particular time in our career in the 70s. They wanted to stay in town and make more records. And Peter and I felt that it was important for us to meet our audience and to promote our brand and to get out there and, you know, uh, uh, see what, what was going on in the world. Sure. So we basically committed to doing that. And, uh, and then, and as we did that, uh, a whole bunch of new adventures opened up for us. And, and of course, we were stimulated by our touring to, to write about the America that we, that we were experiencing. Uh, and, this, and the second album was basically an album that was, uh, we were encouraged to write by, by our relationship to the Starland Vocal Band. We did uh, a, we, we, were, we were hired as comics on a summer replacement show on, I think it was CBS, that starred, that also introduced to the world a guy named David Letterman. Yeah, that's wild. Right? And it was a summer season, summer summer replacement show, and we worked with these incredible singers from the Starline Vocal Band who had a monster hit called Afternoon Delight, mm -hmm. and encouraged by their great voices and spirit and everything, we decided to do a more musical album because we've been putting more and more music into our stage show. And that's where Give Us a Break came from. You know, short form commercial parodies and lots as much music as we could possibly conceive of. Mm. And it was a big hit. It was, we, 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 you see, what we tried to do that was different from Fireside Theater was, in that album, we wanted to do more short form material so that it could be played on the radio and draw attention to not just Procter & Bergman, but to the Fireside Theater. To, to touch, to reach an audience that might not have had the patience to listen to, or the opportunity to listen to our fully produced uh, masterpieces, our real deep, long, crazy stories, but who might be intrigued to listen to them if they were, you know, if they found that what Proctor Bergman was doing was funny. It's more like stand-up, even. Yeah, yeah, because we were doing an act. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that we did, we worked out on stage, which, which Firesign Theater also did. We used to work our material out on the stage <coughs> at a place called the Ash Grove, which is now the improv here in town. Mm-hmm before we recorded it uh, in studio form. Uh, and, and Peter and I continued to do that, but much more vigorously and rigorously, uh, you know, touring all over the, the, the country, and Canada, in fact. And it wasn't until the Chinese uh, Golden Dragon Massacre that we cut back for a little while, but that didn't stop us. Uh, I looked at these date books again, and I said, oh my God, we survived, you know, this, this massacre, five killed, 11 wounded. Heard about we were back on the road within the next month and <laughs> continued touring for at least another year. So it didn't stop us at all. And the next album after that was What This Country Needs, which was another extension of our musical uh, abilities mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and uh, creating a show out of stuff that we did in cabaret uh, touring around the country. But, you, I'm sorry, well, go ahead. Well, give us a break. 
I think is a is a is a very good album uh, that's out there now. It's just been released on Laugh.com, thanks to uh, Milton Berle's nephew Marshall. Mm-hmm. It's a, for those who might not know what this is all about, or for for those of you who are fans of ours who might want to introduce friends of yours to Firesign Theater. Uh, give us a break is a good introduction to it, and it's still very very timely. The material is just as fresh as ever. And uh, very well produced, a lot of fun, and um, I'm glad that it's out there again. And the artwork, by the way, uh, is done by Rob Grossman, uh, who did the cover for Don't Crush That Dwarf and Me the Pliers. Oh, really? Yeah, and who was Peter Bergman's roommate at Yale. Cool. Okay, so again, it's all, everything's all interconnected. And so it ties in. What? Anything else you'd like to say to us before we let you go? Well, I think a half an hour of, of, of jabbering is pretty good. Oh, some I, wonderful jabbering. I don't have a great strong voice right now. But probably I won't be able to uh, play with you guys again until I get back from our trip to uh, Australia. We leave on the 13th of October. Uh, we're back on the 13th of November. I'm sure I'll have quite a few interesting adventures from down under. Yeah. Do I'll, I'll be going to Oz, after all. This so, is true. So I'll be going to Oz, and then I'll have some some wizardly stories to share with you when I get back. Is there any ETA on the book? Uh, no, because uh, I'm I'm taking my time with it right now. Um, Brad just got back from New York. He wrote a book about Jimi Hendrix, and he's been in New York uh, discussing a Broadway show, <clears throat> an iteration of of the book in a Broadway presentation. He just got back yesterday. I'm going to meet with him the next week, and we're going to go through the chapter titles. What we're basically doing is that we're offering a uh, sample chapter and a, and a broad overview of the book, which is presently called Where's My Fortune Cookie? And it's a psychic and psychedelic, it's my psychic and psychedelic story. And uh, uh, we're going to discuss how we can best approach publishers with it and see if we can't get some kind of an advance. You know, the publishing industry has changed so radically. Oh, Lord, yes. You know, if it turns out that it'll be, uh, we're going to self-publish, that'll be an entirely different thing. But the actual process of sitting down and writing the book together with, with my friend is going to take as much time as it takes. And uh, I, I don't want to feel under any great pressure. I'll have a better idea of when, of when it can be finished and how it's going to be distributed and what it will mean uh, probably in another six to eight months, something like that. Okay. Well, Stay listen, you heal, you heal, guy, and I hope that you both have a lot of fun in New Zealand. Thank you very much, Leaf. <laughs> okay. Great I'll having you. I'll turn over a new leaf when I uh, speak with you again. Sounds good, man. Take care.